Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to New Books in History, the channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Zeb Larson, and I'm here today with Dr. Michael Brennis to discuss his new book, For Might and Right, Cold War Defense Spending and the Remaking of American Democracy. Dr. Brennis, uh, thank you for coming uh, to talk to us today at the New Books Network. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. So I am the Associate Director of the Brady Johnson Program in Grand Strategy uh, at Yale University. I'm also a lecturer in history, uh, in the history department. Um, I went to graduate school uh, at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. Um, got my PhD in 2014, uh, specializing in American history uh, in particular, um, and uh, writing my dissertation on uh, this, what became this book, uh, The History of the Cold War uh, and its relationship to domestic politics. Um, and I mean, essentially, my, you know, prior coming to Yale, I was uh, adjunct to taught at various places in, in New York City, uh, and I was also the senior archivist for American diplomacy um, at Yale, too. Now, you mentioned that this book, For Might and Right, it grew out of your dissertation. So talk us through the intellectual foundations a little bit. Sure. So the, um, the impetus for the book came from just entering graduate school during the early uh, Obama years. So I went to graduate school. I entered graduate school in 2007, so late, late Bush years. Um, uh, but I didn't really start to think seriously about a dissertation and writing one, researching one until 2010 or so. Uh, and by that point, of course, um, Obama was in office and we saw uh, yeah, with Obama, his first major um, initiative, domestic initiative at least, was healthcare uh, and passing in some form a universal healthcare plan. A uh, public option, uh, and I saw that you know, debate uh, fight play out, uh, and saw it in ways that I thought were interesting, particularly because of the contradictions that people were um, spouting in terms of their belief in the private market uh, for to deliver health insurance, uh, and their lack of faith in government. Uh, to to do anything significant to uh, help Americans uh, in terms of their their health care. Um, but I also saw that people very much relied upon Medicare and government programs that delivered health insurance. And one of the you know early memes uh, people listeners recall was you know get your government hands off my Medicare. And I thought that was really interesting. Uh, uh, you know it was a, it was an interesting way for me to. Or, or it's an interesting way to see the contradictions. I was very stark and it became very funny, right? Um, but there was something to that, I thought, uh, that people obviously recognize that government is important, but they don't know that government is funding the programs that they think are important, right? Um, something to that extent. And I thought this was interesting given my own uh, growing interest in defense spending and defense in the defense industry. Um, when I first semester in graduate school, I took this class by Josh Freeman. Josh Freeman was a labor historian, um, longtime professor, uh, just retired at the CUNY Graduate Center. Uh, on essentially, it was on just post 1945 um, history, American history. Uh, and we read Lisa McGurr's book, Suburban Warriors, which, uh, if you haven't read it, uh, and if listeners haven't read it, it's essentially about the rise of conservatism in Southern California. And what she argues is that defense workers uh, in Southern California embrace conservative politics. Uh, and I thought, you know, given what's happening with the Obama administration, um, you know, things I started to read besides McGurr's book around the defense industry and how it shapes domestic politics, that I'd write a dissertation that examined this contradiction, um, how it played out and the rise of the right. And what I found in doing the initial research uh, which took me across the country eventually, but doing the initial research for the book was that people uh, who work in the defense industry are some affected by the defense industry, affected by the political economy of defense spending, don't reflexively espouse conservative politics. Um, they aren't conservatives uh, ideologically necessarily, 
uh, and they're much more flexible in their politics. They're much more amenable um, to Democrats and Republicans. And basically what they want is people to deliver jobs and, and uh, the benefits that come with jobs to them, i.e. good health care, things like that. Uh, and so that, to me, was interesting. Uh, and that led to me really thinking about how conservatism isn't the story here, or the rise of conservatism isn't the story here necessarily. Um, and, and it took me a while to kind of get there because I was held steadfast to this idea that I was going to write about the rise of the right and you know, defense spending, but uh, the evidence was showing something else. Um, and so that eventually led me to uh, make the case for in the book that really the political economy of defense spending creates a coalition of actors who are both employed by the defense industry or benefiting by the defense and benefiting from the defense industry in some sense materially, um, but also those who are ideologically committed to anti-communism who would, would much more for, much more so fall on the spectrum of, of, of the right. Um, and it's really this marriage of, of convenience between ideological um, cold warriors and people on the ground, local actors who aren't necessarily ideological, even apolitical, um, who really come to shape how we think about uh, the rise of the right as it relates to the political economy of the Cold War defense spending um, and what that means in regards to the, the endurance of a national security state, um, a massive military budget, uh, and how we how we can think about perhaps uh, you know, creating a coalition that would uh, stymie, defeat, overcome uh, that, uh, the endure, again, the persistence of, of, of the military-industrial complex in American life. So let's, let's jump right into your first chapter. You pick up in about 1945. It's right after World War II is basically coming to a close. What's that first chapter about? Sure. So that, that chapter was, um, it was the hardest to write. Uh, because I was trying to do several things. I was trying to, I, you know, I tried to set the stage for uh, how massive defense spending, how a large military budget uh, is coming to be seen as the only means necessary for the United States to fight and win the Cold War. And that you have a decision made by elites um, when I say elites, I mean Democrats and Republicans, particularly in Congress, but President, you know, the White House as well. Um, uh, those policymakers who are ensconced in national security bureaucracies, um, making a decision about um, what it's going to take to defeat communism, uh, and that decision uh, is a bi- it's a bipartisan one. Uh, there is a, a Democratic Republican. Uh, fight over what uh, a post-war uh, foreign policy is going to be, but they essentially come to terms with, uh, with you now ultimately that the United States is going going to be in a position where it's going to have to fight uh, well, you know, a massive, uh, a massive you know, uh, ideological war, but also economic and military war. And it's going to be a war, you know, a long piece, as, as John Gaddis has said. Um, so that, I'm trying to tell that story uh, in the book, in the first chapter. But again, I was I was more interested in what this means for um, the you know the political economy, the material um, products uh, of this ideological consensus. Because again, I think you, the the part of the or the maybe the entire story of the book I'm trying to tell is that there's a larger connection that needs to be made between the grassroots and local actors and um, police. And so this story I'm trying to tell in that chapter is how Americans in general came to view defense spending as permanent um, and why uh, the Cold War um, came to be seen as ideologically necessary, but also materially necessary. Uh, And so I start off with, uh, you know, actors, the chapter starts out with actors on both the left and the right saying that we need to have, uh, particularly during the Korean War, uh, a, a effort by the government to employ Americans from you know, in the defense industry or by the defense industry who are in need of assistance. Um, you know, they don't have jobs or, or, or their, their communities need, need um, an injection of, of uh, capital. 
for them to stay afloat. Uh, and this is an argument made by on the left and the right. Uh, and so I started with figures like Ger Gerald Ford, who's a Republican in Michigan, also Walter Ruther, um, head of the UAW, uh, been very much not a Republican, um, starts off in social circles, becomes more of a cold or liberal, but um, those two figures kind of set the stage for this ideological consensus, you know, that is the you know, Ford in Congress, um, Ruther uh, representing workers who need um, uh, this ideological consensus on foreign policy to benefit uh, his workers, his, his constituents materially. Uh, and then it goes into a discussion of how how really the, the fight in Congress in particular uh, plays out over how national security or, or I should say the military budget is going to be funded. Uh, and that story, I think, is unique because you have Democrats and quite largely blame, blame for, uh, you know, blame is the word, but uh, I find responsible for um, creating a, a massive military budget because they believe uh, that is, Democrats believe that it's, it's the best way to deliver uh, social benefits, the, the sort of the, um, elements of social democracy uh, to Americans in ways that won't receive as much resistance from the GOP, from Republicans who believe, you know, in a post-war period that any uh, program that uh, is designed towards you know, universal health care or full employment uh, is a socialist program and therefore it's coming from Moscow. Uh, and it's, it's a way for, that is, Democrats, you know, creating jobs, creating full employment, or trying to create full employment in some ways uh, through the military budget. It's a way for them to kind of funnel, um, funnel social democracy through military um, apparatus and avoid the critiques they might receive from the right, uh, which I'm sure um, many of us are aware of, uh, you know, given what's going on today, of course, in, in politics. Uh, and then the Republicans, of course, are put in a position where they have to either say, no, we don't want a massive military budget um, because, uh, you know, it's going to be a problem uh, for, uh, you know, this is a insidious way to, to deliver, um, again, uh, jobs and growth to Americans, uh, or they're going to have to say, we don't want this massive defense budget uh, because it's going to be leading to a garrison state, which is what some Republicans like Robert Taft um, fear. And so the story in the chapters is really how Republicans come to terms and Democrats come to terms um, with large scale um, defense spending. And that once that um, census is again forged, uh, particularly in Congress, it leads many Americans to think that this is this is permanent, right? Uh, or the growth of the industry as it continues, the defense industry that is as it continues, makes many Americans believe that this is permanent and they look for the jobs um, that the defense industry created um, during World War II and even prior to that during the New Deal to continue in the post-war period. And the, the lessons from World War II, I think, are, are in terms of this are quite clear. That is, in uh, the event of a depression, right, full employment through military spending uh, is possible and that's what happens during World War II is that you know, unemployment is about 17% in the late 30s, mid 30s, uh, and then it goes down to some 5% after the war. And I think that's that's key to, to shaping how Americans think about what the defense industry can offer them um, just to improve their livelihoods. Uh, and, and that's how this evolves, uh, you know, or how the chapter evolves. And by the end of the chapter, I, I conclude that what happens is that many Americans are benefiting um, from the political economy of the Cold War, but they're not all benefiting on equal terms. And this is, uh, sets the stage for the story that comes, which is that the inequality in how defense spending, um, or how uh, defense spending uh, is uh, financed, how, how the, the defense funds uh, or funds in the defense budget are distributed to Americans uh, inherently shapes um, you know, winners and losers uh, in uh, in the process. That some people benefit more than others, but still, Americans by and large want uh, the ben want the, the political economy of the Cold War to uh, give them jobs, to give them growth, uh, and that's going to be a problem, particularly as we uh, get into the 1960s and 1970s, when the defense industry isn't uh, doing what it has been doing. Uh, in regards to creating jobs um, like it 
like it did in the 1940s and 50s. So to rewind before we get to the 1960s and 1970s, in your second chapter, we, we see a lot how this, what you've termed the Cold War coalition sort of comes together, but you also start to see how it operates, and you've touched on this at a regional level. Talk to us a little bit about that. Sure. So um, what happens is, uh, I mean, the, during World War II, let's start, let's start there. During World War II, uh, the, much of the industrial base of, of, of war making during World War II takes place in the Northeast and the Midwest, right? Uh, in Ford, uh, based in Detroit, of course, uh, you know, receives a large number of defense contracts um, to build planes. There's many books on this uh, to for the war. Um, there is uh, places in, in Connecticut and defense companies in Connecticut uh, who are receiving defense contracts uh, to build ships. Uh, there are other places as well throughout the country who are, who are of course, getting defense contracts. But the, the industrial base um, of, the, of the defense industry is really in the Midwest and, and in the Northeast, um, Michigan, New York, Connecticut, places like that. But that starts to change in the 1950s um, into the 1960s, where during the Cold War, of course, we don't need as much of an industrial base. We still need an industrial base, but now what's happening is we're investing in innovative technology, uh, and we're uh, not so much, uh, that is, we in the United States, is not so much in need of uh, the same types of manufacturing uh, that you have during World War II. And we're relying more upon you know, PhDs and, and scientists and engineers um, to develop these new weapons. Um, so that's one thing that happens. But also, two, it just becomes cheaper to, uh, for factories to relocate to the South. Um, and also, it's more for the United States, a uh, matter of national security, uh, of creating, in, creating um, industries, creating uh, military bases outside of, of centers that might be targets for um, a Soviet attack. So in the South uh, and uh, in the Midwest, in the Plains, that's when you start to see uh, these uh, you know, new centers of uh, activity for the Cold War um, or political economy of the Cold War. States like South Carolina, uh, for instance, uh, Colorado, uh, Florida, and then going uh, West in, eventually into California, which becomes a large recipient of, of defense contracts um, at the 1950s. Uh, and what I argue is that regionally what happens is that the, the, the industrial base of, of the Northeast and Midwest, they're still getting defense contracts, but they see that the, the numbers um, are not the same. But again, this is sort of a zero-sum game. So they see that, that, that they're, they're not benefiting, so they look to the South and that, that it is benefiting, say, oh, why is the South getting or why are these new states getting these monies and we're not, uh, and they get angry and uh, antagonistic and uh, look to people to blame, of course, as you would do, uh, and they increasingly start to blame uh, Democrats um, throughout the 1950s and 60s um, and are advocating for, to whoever will listen, uh, more defense jobs, uh, which they remember, rightfully so, as creating uh, prosperity in, for themselves and their communities. And as the South starts to benefit uh, and the West starts to benefit more from the defense industry, you see a pre-existing conservative politics that's there. Um, of course, uh, you know, people like Mendel Rivers, who is a representative from South Carolina, uh, is very much a supporter of, of Jim Crow, but also um, one of the largest proponents of defense spending uh, in, his, in his state at one point. Uh, I forget the line, I'm probably going to butcher it, but, you know, it was Rivers, uh, Mendel Rivers, Rivers Delivers, this was the headline of a New York Times article about Rivers at one point, uh, and one of his colleagues said that uh, if uh, Mendel, if you put one more military uh, base uh, in your home state, you know, South Carolina is going to sink. Uh, and, you know, that, so there's, there's, a, there's a, obviously a, a, a regional interest um, in benefiting from this shift, uh, in, in the political economy. Uh, and that creates a politics that is very interesting that 
you have, of course, a conservative area that's still dependent upon, um, or going increasingly dependent, going to be increasingly dependent upon the defense industry, but also antagonistic towards the federal government overall. And in the north, you have, um, you know, situations where people are antagonistic towards the federal government for not delivering on what it's supposed to be doing, what it's promised, um, what's been promised to them in terms of, of growth and jobs. Uh, and so it creates this um, coalition, as I say, Cold War coalition, of actors who in some ways are um, upset at the federal government and want, want um, their representatives, politicians, to do something um, on their behalf to continue the growth, continue the jobs um, that they've experienced um, because of the Cold War. Uh, and this puts, again, the situation uh, of American politics in, and how we think about you know, the rise of conservatism or the decline of liberalism, you know, outside of those terms. Uh, it's a really it's a bipartisan that is benefiting from the Cold War. It's a really a bipartisan issue and problem uh, and this is a reflection of how uh, regional makeup of sort of the Cold War evolves um, after the 1950s. Now, going into the 1960s, we get into Vietnam. And because of that, we expect to see certain kind of challenges to that. But, but how does that actually play out? Because I think you complicate a narrative of, of straight anti-militarism coming out of the Vietnam War. Yeah, so... Um, what, what I'm arguing uh, in, in, in what I see in the 1960s is, I mean, first, prior to the Vietnam War, there was a period of relative international stability. Um, this, is in, this is in the second chapter of the book, uh, where after the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962, there's a decision made within the Kennedy administration, even to some extent prior to the Cuban Missile Crisis, that we don't need to be spending as much on military uh, you know, traditional military ordinance. Uh, we don't, there's, there's a, a number of superfluous military programs that don't serve the national interest of the United States because it, in the end we're fighting a cold war that relies upon nuclear weapons and nuclear supremacy and we don't need to have as many uh, you know, tanks made, ships made, things like that. And so what McNamara does, and McNamara is by no stretch of the imagination you know, an anti-militarist, but what McNamara does is he's very much a, a man of efficiency and says, Let's start cutting uh, defense spending. We don't, we don't need as much. We can rely upon um, ICBMs. We can rely upon American nuclear security, uh, and starts to close military bases around parts of the country. Starts to develop um, plans. I would, I would say, in some ways, for defense conversion or converting elements of the defense industry into civilian purposes. Uh, and this arouses, as you can imagine, a lot of ire amongst. Uh, people who benefit from the programs that McNamara wants to eliminate. Uh, and you have this brief period in 1963, 1964, um, where because of the, again, the, the international situation uh, being one where you think that the Cold War is, is waning, that there's a flaw in the Cold War, uh, that creates opportunities for Democrats like George McGovern, who's a Democrat from South Dakota, newly elected to the Senate uh, in 1962 to create opportunities to uh, think broader, think bigger than McNamara in uh, altogether reducing in large numbers uh, the amount of the United States is spending on the military. On the military. And so McGovern actually creates this, uh, tries to create this organization called the National Economic Conversion Commission, uh, which is uh, very interesting plans, 1964, uh, that he develops through discussions with uh, Columbia economist Seymour Melman, who is a long-term proponent of disarmament and conversion, uh, which would be a, a way you know, that the commission would be a way to find where you know find areas where defense the defense industry uh, is in need of elimination or or, or aspects of uh, military programs are, are no longer necessary, and go in and just uh, essentially give uh, through the federal government, uh, find ways to study the problems that, that communities are facing and give them opportunities to be employed in the civilian uh, sector in jobs that we would consider now to be green jobs, environmental jobs. And that's a really an interesting, it's an interesting story. And I did not know about McGovern. I knew a little about his 
his opposition to the defense budget for this, but I didn't really know how much he had tried to do in the coalitions he assembled um, in 63 and 64 prior to this. Uh, but this gets, this, you know, governs a planned conversion overall, uh, gets stymied because of, and mostly defeated because of Vietnam War. And what Vietnam does is does two things. One, it, it proves to, uh, or at least it, it signals to Congress that uh, we can't be in the, in the business of conversion anymore, that there's now a, a, now a war in Southeast Asia we need to fight. We need to be ramping up our military capabilities to, uh, to confront that threat or supposed threat in Vietnam from communism. And two, uh, it uh, puts um, essentially the uh, political economy of the Cold War in a position where it's now making money again um, from war in ways that it hadn't really since Korean, the Korean War. And so Americans are starting to benefit again from an increase in the defense budget. They're starting to see defense communities are starting to see an uptick in jobs. And so that relatively placates um, the constituents who were dissatisfied by the way things were going, you know, in 62, 63, 64, who um, even up to 65, uh, who would be amenable to conversion um, prior to the Vietnam War. But when the Vietnam War goes, you know, horribly wrong, as I would argue it was going to be, I'm going horribly wrong as soon as it, the United States committed uh, troops and, and a presence there um, even before 65. But uh, once it's proven to be uh, a quagmire in 1968, you start to see the anti-war movement taking um, taking on a greater hold uh, over American politics, greater visibility. There's a larger conversation in the United States about the military-industrial complex, which hadn't taken place again since 1961, when Dwight Eisenhower made his uh, famous farewell speech where he referenced the military-industrial complex. There are a number of books that come out um, in the late 1960s, early 1970s, talking about uh, the need to um, nationalize the military, nationalize the defense industry. This is what John Kenneth Galbraith, the famous economist, makes, the argument he makes. Um, there's you know, tired generals coming out and saying, we don't need this military-industrial complex anymore. This anti-war movement is protesting in front of Dow uh, Chemical, uh, which is making napalm. Um, there's a critique of the military, industrial, labor, congressional complex um, that you start to see as well. Um, but uh, the problem uh, of this, and, you know, there's lots to be said about the capabilities uh, or the opportunities that are, that are presented to this coalition of anti-militarists um, who are you know, in act, you know, activists also by who are in Congress, who are, who are also in academia. Lots we said about the opportunities that they have presented to them in the late 1960s, 1970s, but they um, they aren't able to make or have enough traction in, in American politics to altogether create defense conversion because in the ways they want to because uh, of the economic uh, situation, the economic situation that the United States is facing in the late 60s and early 1970s uh, in regards to um, stagnation of wages, uh, recession in, in the economy, and what happens by the early, you know, at the same time, you start to have this growing anti-militarist sentiment in the United States. You have um, a growing recession that leads to Americans clinging to uh, the, their jobs, uh, believing that their jobs, rightfully so, are, are insecure and they, they, want to, they want to have um, sustainability uh, in, in their livelihoods. And so you have a situation where they're, they're lobbying um, for the defense jobs that they had throughout the 60s now in the Vietnam War to continue to keep going. Um, and that leads to a very interesting set of, of again, coalitions, both on the left and the right, working together, labor unions and conservative activists working together to um, keep defense spending high in ways that they feel will benefit both themselves personally, um, certainly in the case of labor unions, but also uh, nationally, internationally, the, the security of the United States. Now, in your fourth chapter, we move a little bit beyond the Vietnam War, and a lot of that sort of anti-militarist, anti-spending coalition is still, if not strong, in, in the conversation, but they diminished through the 1970s. Talk us through what happens in that decade. So, um, so what happens, in, I mean, first in the 1970s, again, there's the, the recession that I referenced uh, and 
there seems to be, again, an opportunity here for anti-militarists to make headway. Uh, in in you know, electoral terms, that is expressed in the candidacy of George McGovern, uh, now a candidate for president in 1972, right, senator, uh, opposed to a large military budget, you know, makes, makes the military budget one of his key issues in Congress. Um, now in 1972, he's running for office for uh, against Richard Nixon. He eventually gets the nomination, uh, advocates for an immediate withdrawal from Vietnam, uh, advocates for uh, an expanded New Deal, expanded social welfare state, uh, universal health care, um, you know, other things that Democrats uh, or left, left liberals and Democrats were fighting for uh, since, you know, since the New Deal in some ways. Uh, and... McGovern says we're going to pay for this expanded social welfare state um, through cuts in defense spending. Uh, and what he starts to say is we're going to, I think he said we're going to have a $30 billion cut to the defense budget. Um, and that's how we're going to pay for social welfare, um, you know, expanded social um, programs, um, universal health care, uh, things. And he says, you know, it's a sad, sad thing that we have to rely upon the military to. Um, for jobs, right? There's no reason why we should do that, um, and we have to um, figure out ways in which we can, you know, we can reconsider um, how military spending through military Keynesianism um, has has uh, hurt Americans more than helped them, uh, and the and the and the necessity of the United States and um, overall. So, McNamara makes this case in 1972, and he really doesn't go anywhere. Um, one of the problems that McNamara has in 72 is that he doesn't have a very clear conversion plan like he had in 64, which baffles me to this day. Um, he, he basically just says we need to eliminate the defense budget, um, which is you know, fine, uh, fine suggestion, but he doesn't have something that can capture voters in, in practical terms. Uh, and, of course, there's a very powerful growing right um, that Richard Nixon is... Uh, He's catering to in some in some capacity Richard Nixon, who was president in the time, and will of course be McGovern's challenger. And so when McGovern loses in '72, it, it you know it's a defeat for the left, of course, and what they've been fighting for for you know for much of of the '60s. Um, McGovern seeming to be the culmination of the left and new politics and a presidential candidate, but it's also an opportunity for uh, the right. Uh, to make inroads uh, into into defense spending, we have or into into American politics through to, through issues of defense spending, and I think the most prominent conservative uh, who takes advantage of this is Ronald Reagan, um, who, of course, we know was elected in 1980 as president. But what I find more interesting than perhaps not more interesting, but yeah. Um, Maybe uh, just as interesting as his election in 1980 is, is his run for president in 1976. Um, because what happens in 76 is that Reagan, um, by this point, uh, Richard Nixon gets reelected in 72, but Richard Nixon has proposed uh, and, and implemented a policy of detente with the Soviet Union. Uh, he has um, so called, uh, quote unquote, opened China through diplomacy. Uh, he's engaged in strategic arms limitations talks with the Soviet Union. Uh, and Richard Nixon believes, many people do because of Vietnam, that we can't be have, you know, having a, a tough military posture, that we can't be waging wars uh, in far-flung parts of the world um, for uh, time memorial, that we need to be more limited and constrained in how we um, wage our foreign policy. And of course, Richard Nixon is very cynical about this, but um, ultimately... Uh, in terms of his motives, but ultimately what this means is that many on the right uh, who believe that the United States shouldn't uh, lessen its, its, uh, its tough attitude towards, towards Soviet communism or communism overall um, are upset about Nixon and his policy detente, uh, which is embraced by many liberals too, uh, and they advocate for again, renewal to a Cold War, um, renewal to Cold War containment, uh, more akin to uh, what you saw during the Truman administration, uh, where uh, Truman was responsible for uh, the Marshall Plan, Truman Doctrine, uh, and eventually, again, uh, this large uh, military-industrial complex being formed in the 40s and 50s. And, and Ronald Reagan is, is the candidate in 76 who 
uh, is the candidate of, of the Cold War. He's actually, what I argue in the book is that he runs as a Cold War liberal in many ways. Um, and he starts out, what's interesting about Reagan in 76 is he starts out not really advocating or making defense a, a key part of his run for president. He starts his run for president by saying we're going to, you know, our key issue is economic issues. And he says, well, we're going to cut um, uh, defense, uh, military, sorry, social spending. Uh, and we're going to have this, you know, across the board, arbitrary cut uh, in all social programs. And we're going to reduce the size of government. Uh, we're going to get uh, Americans um, off, um, you know, off of welfare, things like that. And it's wildly unpopular. You know, he has just, this, again, uh, it seemed to be this this number that he has um, advocated for, is, you know, billions of dollars in, in cuts. You know, it's just just nonsensical callous uh, and contrary to the interests of many Americans. And Reagan starts to lose in key states in the, in the primaries, early states in the primaries, New Hampshire, um, you know, uh, other states like, like that, um, it, you know, in the early primaries. And by the time Reagan looks like Reagan's about to lose uh, his run, he's challenging Gerald Ford in 76, which was at the outset who was president, um, um, after Richard Nixon resigns in 74. Uh, and, you know, by the time that Reagan looks like he's going to lose to Ford, uh, Reagan, in this is the key state here is North Carolina, Reagan starts to shift to talking about detente uh, and talking about national defense. And talking about how Gerald Ford is weak uh, on military spending, he's weak towards communism, uh, and he's leaving the United States exposed to a communist takeover, which has uh, salience, resounding salience, I would say, in the state of North Carolina because of the ways that the military shapes uh, the state of North Carolina. Uh, there's several military bases, um, Fort Bragg and other places um, in North Carolina. There's some defense uh, uh, industries as well. Um, and it, it's just also an ideologically captivating issue for many um, North Carolinians. Uh, and Reagan wins that state in the 76 primary. And that's that makes national defense during the Republican primary, I, I, I argue in the book, the key issue for the remainder of the primary, um, where Reagan didn't really attack detente too much or in very conspicuous terms, but by by at the end of the primary, it's, it's really what has shaped him and made him who he was um, as a candidate, uh, almost to the point that Reagan won the, the nomination in 76. Um, Reagan uh, he doesn't get the required uh, votes at the convention, the Republican convention in Kansas City that year, but uh, he comes quite close within you know, 100 votes or so uh, uh, necessary receiving the nomination. And he influences Ford enough to say during the Republican uh, platform uh, for Republicans to say that you know, they actually don't they don't use the word detente. They, they use the term uh, peace through strength, um, which harkens back again to the Cold War, uh, the 40s and 50s. And then what's what's happening throughout this run that Reagan has in 76 is that he's gathering elements of the Cold War coalition behind him who both ideologically and materially um, support the national or the military industrial complex, national security state. Uh, and he's doing so in ways by pulling Democrats into the Republican fold uh, and securing the um, support of conservative activists who have been working on, uh, or yeah, working on, is the word, but uh, organizing around the basis of national defense issues for, for decades. And so this is, I think, a key, perhaps somewhat overlooked story uh, in the rise of, of Reagan, but also the, the making of um, not just, again, the, the right, but a coalition of actors who um, are drawn to right-leaning politics, even though they might not necessarily identify as conservative. Um, and this is going to eventually influence Jimmy Carter um, this coalition after Reagan loses in 76 is going to eventually influence Jimmy Carter, who is going to deal with the after effects of the coalition that Reagan has assembled in 76, who continually push Carter to do more on defense spending. And Reagan doesn't uh, do more really until 79 after the invasion of Afghanistan by the Soviet Union. Uh, and then um, Carter initially embraces detente, tries to work towards a second arms limitation treaty with 
um, the Soviet Union uh, after Nixon secured it, the first one in 72, uh, and you know, abandons that um, by 79, advocates for and pushes for uh, financing the MX missile, um, uh, Trident submarine, a uh, number of programs that he thought were no longer necessary. Uh, but this then makes Jimmy Carter responsible for uh, reviving Cold War liberalism just as much as Ronald Reagan, I would say, to a certain extent, maybe not just as much, but to a certain extent as, as Ronald Reagan did, um, and making Cold War liberalism again uh, prominent in American uh, politics in ways that, that shape how we think about, again, the, the coming the age of Reagan, as it's been called by, by some historians. So in your fifth chapter, we get to move into that age of Reagan, and you've already outlined a lot of what the defense industry looks like in this period, but just to sort of take us home in this last chapter, what are you talking about here? So um, Reagan, I mean, Reagan takes office in 1981, and what Reagan says is we are behind the Soviet Union in nuclear and military capabilities, um, that we need a defense buildup uh, of uh, proportions that you know rival essentially the the, the Vietnam War, uh, and in defense as a portion of GDP is you know I think around at this point four or five percent of GDP. Um, I mean defense spending, the height of defense spending as as it relates to GDP uh, is during the Korean War is fifteen percent of GDP. It never reaches that number again. It's nine percent again. Um, or goes up to 9% uh, during the Vietnam War, um, and it goes down after that. So it's about, I think, 5% of GDP um, around this time, 1980s. And Reagan says that's far too little. Soviet Union has, Soviet Union has done too much, uh, or has outpaced us, and we need to do more. And so Reagan advocates for a defense buildup, um, which is going to mean uh, the injection of federal dollars into the defense industry uh, to, in terms of both and conventional weapons, but uh, manufacturing, um, again, all the things that we th think about in terms of, of, of making war, um, but also uh, new programs, uh, missile defense programs uh, in particular, uh, that will deter the Soviet Union, but also be uh, a, a way to signal to the Soviet Union that the United States is serious about renewing its military capabilities. And what I focus on in the chapter uh, is, in particular, the development of Strategic Defense Initiative, or SDI, um, which is uh, first announced in, in 1983. Uh, and what SDI, you know, for those who don't know, SDI was a complicated, convoluted, uh, I would argue, uh, missile defense system that was uh, designed, that the conception of it was going to be satellites in space that would be equipped with lasers that could essentially shoot uh, Soviet uh, ICBMs or, you know, uh, signal you know, to, to um, other satellites the capability to, to shoot uh, or to signal to satellites or coordinate amongst each other signal the capability for the United States to shoot uh, Soviet uh, ICBMs out of the sky uh, if indeed the Soviet Union decided to launch uh, a nuclear attack against the United States and believe that um, the Soviet Union was, would do that was quite high at this time. And you see that reflected in American culture, um, movies like The Day After, things like that. Um, the sense of renewed Armageddon um, that, you, that you felt uh, or would have felt in the 1940s and 50s um, during those years of the Cold War. It's very much present in the 80s. Um, but, uh, and I do get into a little bit of, sort of the, the cultural effects, the political cultural effects of, of SDI, but I'm more interested in who is benefiting, again, economically, materially from uh, from this, again, belief, uh, consensus uh, that the United States must fight the Cold War through massive military power. Uh, and what I find is that, again, as you saw in the 50s and 60s, um, some Americans are benefiting more than others. And SDI is, you know, it doesn't, there's not much to manufacture for SDI. It's relatively nothing to manufacture for SDI. So what you, you really need is, is 
again, PhDs, an educated uh, workforce um, who doesn't need a lot of, of space to do their work. They're ensconced in certain places like DC, DC Maryland, and skyscrapers, you know, doing experiments. There's, they're in Colorado, um, employed by Martin Marietta, um, which is the main contractor for SDI. Um, and they're doing quite well. If you're, if you're in uh, an, an, an industry that doesn't require you to produce things, um, uh, and as an you know, intellectual, uh, engaging intellectual development of, of Weapon and experiments of, of this kind, then you don't, you know, you're doing quite well. But for many Americans who would be employed in other parts of the defense industry or other parts of the coming Cold War, um, they're not doing so so well. And this is certainly the case in the traditional manufacturing base, uh, as I said at the outset of the of the coming Cold War in the Northeast and Midwest. And what I look at in the in the Chapter in the last chapter, the fifth chapter is how this affects uh, North, you know, New York and Connecticut defense industries in New York and Connecticut and communities that rely upon the defense industries um, in those states. And what you see, what I saw uh, in doing the research was um, they are not very pleased with Reagan's defense buildup. They don't see that they're benefiting from it. And in fact, a number of factories close. Thousands of Americans lose their jobs um, in New York and Connecticut, and also to a certain extent in Missouri, places like in the West. Um, and they are uh, voting for Ronald Reagan, interestingly enough, um, in, as president, but um, on, a, on a national level or a local level, they're voting for Democrats and Republicans who promise them that they're going to save their jobs um, from being cut. Uh, and so what I'm arguing first and foremost is that Reagan's defense of buildup, uh, Reagan overall, his, his domestic and foreign policies um, benefit a few to the detriment of most. Um, and that we should see Reagan's defense policies as foreign policies as constructed within a context of inequality, um, what Judas Stein has called, on the latest story in Judas Stein has called, the age of inequality. Uh, and what this means for many Americans is that um, by the 1980s and 1990s, um, they are not working in the defense industry anymore, uh, at least in the parts of, of the book, or areas um, that I concentrate in the book, New York and Connecticut. Um, and they are angry about that, and they're voting for, increasingly, um, Republicans um, after the 1990s uh, who promised lower taxes, uh, who promised them uh, you know, also, uh, you know, uh, greater control over, um, you know, their uh, decisions in, in terms of localities, but also promise them more defense spending. Defund uh, promised them that they're going to increase the uh, military budget, uh, which is interesting because, in fact, again, you know, Reagan promised that but didn't deliver uh, materially to them. And so it puts Americans in this who benefit from the Cold War in this weird position increasingly of ideologically supporting many Republicans um, voting for them, but materially not benefiting as much as they, as, as they would, um, but still feeling like they have to vote for, or they should vote for for the GOP. And the Democrats in, in the same position where they're, or similar position where they're, defend, they're, you know, many of them are opposed to Reagan's defense policies, opposed to his foreign policy, um, you know, don't like that Reagan has um, committed so much to the military to the detriment of social programs. But many members of Congress, when of course when it comes down to saving their constituents' jobs, they're advocating for those defense programs that um, they feel are being cut. And so they're actually pushing Reagan to do more in terms of, of creating um, or spending more on the military. So it's putting Democrats in this position where they have to uh, feel they they have to justify their anti-militarist rhetoric by with more militarism. It's, it's kind of a of, of a of a weird position, and so this is I think shaping the Democratic Party today, uh, where you know they're, they're still voting in large numbers with Republicans um, on Democrats, not exclusively because of again parochial politics. What I, what I call parochial politics in the book, you know, 
economic material issues and keeping their jobs um, in Congress, you know, that kind of thing, but also for ideological reasons. But it's, it's still um, overall bipartisan support, bipartisan consensus support around um, what the United States should be doing uh, through its defense budget. That is not just um, using its defense budget to go after uh, perceived enemies abroad, but also to um, creating jobs and growth um, for Americans at home. So something I think that's interesting is you, in some ways, bookend the monograph with with anecdotes from the 1990s about drawdowns in defense spending and how the tremendous anxiety it understandably produces in people who are dependent on it for his livelihood. But And yet military spending never really seems to go anywhere. How do we break free of this? One of the things I was struck by reading this was just these cycles of opposition to military spending that come around but never really lead to long-lasting change. Do you see a way out of that? Um, I, I do. I think you have to remain hopeful uh, um, because if you don't, um, you know, it's it, yeah, it becomes too deterministic. And I think that's something I wanted to avoid with the books. And you're right. That, that's what I saw. These patterns of opposition that, uh, again, seem to have an, an opening, seem to have moved uh, over to the window a little bit, but in the end don't quite make enough um, or you know, don't have enough allies or don't um, make a, a dent enough in, in defense budget and uh, in how Americans view the defense budget uh, and what's done for them. Uh, and therefore, militarism persists and ensues. Uh, in some ways, you know, even uh, in greater terms than originally. But um, I do, I do think there is opportunity. Um, I, I, of course, I, I think one thing you need in, in, in to sort of, you know, as you said, to get kind of rethink our commitment to, to defense spending and to the military. Um, one, one thing I think we do have right now is the Overton window opening to a certain extent. Um, uh, I. I think with the critique of endless wars, um, with the long, uh, you know, long, I think Americans' long-standing opposition to involvement in countries uh, militarily, um, you know, that that can, you know, overall, there's been times of support uh, that you see for you know, Iraq um, recently in Afghanistan, but overall, I would say in the long history of American support um, for military interventions and. Yeah, it's, it's, it's quite limited, and I think people should capture that and, and seize seize upon it to, you know, to keep reiterating that in some ways to, to, to open the Overton window further. Um, I think you have organizations like Quincy Institute who are who are now trying to build institutions um, in Congress, to trying to can you know convince policymakers that a policy of restraint. Um, Demilitarization is in the best interest of of not just the country, important it is, of course, but their constituents. Um, and I say country, not security, um, but constituents as well. Uh, and I think you also have um, what what Bernie Sanders has done is uh, uh, created opportunities for uh, activists um, on the ground to, to do greater work. Um, I think the challenge uh, on, on behalf of, of demilitarizing American foreign policy, I think the challenge is to create a coalition that would would be lasting in the ways that I did not see throughout the Cold War. I think that's that's hard because what's what I saw frequently during the Cold War, and I think is might happen now, is that a new foreign policy event comes up, and uh, you know, Vietnam, uh, you know. In, in, Korea, uh, one of those some major events come up and it and it closes opportunities. It it, it restricts um, avenues for opposition um, um, to to American um, to large scale military spending, uh, and it puts people in, in position where Americans in position again where they're they're asked to. You know, by others, you know, pollsters, elites. Like, do do you do you support America to intervene in this place to defend its national security? And of course, many Americans will say yes, and that that forms the basis for consensus um, or for a decision, new consensus 
or a set of decisions around how American foreign policy should um, be engaging in a more um, interventionist sense throughout the world. I think that's that's the problem, is creating a coalition that will um, be lasting in a way that uh, neutralizes any effort uh, on the part of certain members of uh, or certain elites, certain certain people who are supportive of invention of interventionist foreign policy, um, neutralizes them to the point that it, it will deter deter um, a decision that would that would be to um, that would be to greater commitment of, of American forces abroad and therefore an increased uh, defense budget. Um, but I, I do think we are at a great advantageous time, um, or well. I think we're at a better position now than we were 10 years ago, let's put it that way, um, to consider these things and to think about them. Um, and I, I do think institutionally, you know, those who are opposed to militarism are are in a better place than where they were 10 years ago. And I think those are encouraging signs, and we should hold on to them and, and build upon them uh, uh, going forward. That makes a lot of sense. Um... Now that you've finished this book, and this will be my last question before I let you go off and enjoy your weekend, um, what are you thinking of working on next? Um, I, have a, I have a couple of projects in mind. So I think one project would be that I've, I've written up a, a short proposal on it is um, uh, how small conflicts become permanent conflicts. Um, so uh, you know, how America's wars become endless wars. Um, so thinking about the ways in which, you know, a sh you know, relatively short military conflict, lasting military conflict, so War of 1898, for instance, which is over in a matter of months, um, you know, in 1898, how that leads to uh, an enduring uh, endless conflict, um, to a certain extent, I would say, uh, uh, in... Um, or, or over America's influence uh, in, in um, Caribbean, Latin America, uh, Philippines, uh, of course, and in, in, in Asia, which is um, Philippines becomes a colony of the United States um, after World War II, up until World War II, uh, and how that shapes um, the conflicts that are to come in those parts of the world. Uh, so, looking at uh, War of 1898. Um, looking uh, at uh, the intervention uh, in the Dominican Republic, looking at how uh, the Korean War and the opposition to um, communists or, or those who are communism in Korea, um, you know, those who are involved in uh, working on behalf of the North Korean, North Korean state, uh, the United States goes after them um, as well um, militarily and that shapes the Vietnam War um, in a counterinsurgency fashion that they go after more communists in ways that shape the Vietnam War, um, which of course is going to influence um, how we think about conflict today. There's, that's something I've yet to, it's an idea I've been kicking around, I've yet to tease uh, out fully. Uh, and the other is just a completely different project on, on history of progressives, which I've I've worked more on. I started working on this book on Hubert Humphrey, um, which turned somewhat into a book on Hubert Humphrey and Lyndon Johnson, looking at Cold War liberalism and um, shaping ideas, uh, how Cold War liberalism shapes ideas for what's possible um, in terms of domestic spending and regards to full employment and healthcare and things like that. Found Humphrey to be the personification of, uh, of, of American um, limitations and opportunities. Uh, for, for building a, a post-war uh, welfare state. But I, I think over time, I've, I, I don't see a, a project uh, developing uh, out of that. And I think what might be more interesting is taking the research from that project and thinking about the ways in which progressives um, form coalitions um, through... Uh, advocating for uh, the United States be you know, holding up to its responsibility as the, as the most, wealth, most wealthiest nation in the world. Um, you saw this in the Bernie Sanders campaign and other campaigns that the United States have. This is you know, reiterated today, you know, 2020, 
um, the United States is the richest nation in the world. How is it possible that we're not able to um, have universal health care or um, uh, maternity leave, things like that? And how activists, progressive activists, and coalitions are built around um, American prosperity um, and what that means for um, achieving uh, equality, racial equality, economic equality um, uh, on, on these issues. So American prosperity actually um, hurting and helping um, progressives uh, in the post-war period. So those are the two projects I've kicked around. I don't know if both of those will be viable. <laughs> um, you know, I can't know if I, that is, I don't know if I can do them both at the same time, um, but uh, I've I've been rethinking things, as I'm sure many historians have, uh, in the context of COVID and access to archives. Um, and I think that's a, obviously probably another story, um, another podcast. But um, yeah, I've, I've yet to determine what comes next, um, but it's probably going to be one of those projects. Um, we'll see see if a publisher is interested in either either one. And that's <laughs> probably the one I'll. I'll do based upon uh, what's what's most uh, publishable uh, for presses. Sounds good. I'm looking forward. I look forward to seeing which direction you decide to go in. And thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Oh, it was a pleasure, Zed. Thanks for having me.